Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is poet and novelist Philomena Van Rieswick. Philomena, welcome. Oh, hi. Thanks, Maggie. Uh, before we begin chatting, I'd love you to open the show by reading the title poem from um, from the collection Bread of the Lost, yep. the title poem yep. in Perdue. Yeah. Um, can you tell me what page it's on? Uh, yeah, actually, I wrote all the pages down, but not that one. I'm just going to find it for you. Oh, no, I've got it. Okay, good. I've got it now. Pan uh, Perdue, Bread of the Lost. Collect sideways amongst a mire of tired bed covers, waiting for you to call, and a swan breathed to life by a flute-stamp reed, making a mirror for my gnat-feathered prostration. And now I am the swan, and not the linen white or tamed, but one of the wild blackbirds that coast the eddies and snags like dreary death barges, their snouts alight with the tiny flames of funeral lamps. And the swan that I am is not gliding gracefully in the current macabre, but is nearly dead, sprawled on its Victorian taffeta skirt, its horrible neck twisted in a dying kind of strangeness amongst the sour sedges and worms. I am not yet dead, but I am dying. I am dying from a lump of spoiled bread turned to bed in my slender throat, a bland wadge of hopefulness wedged like a lump of loaf cast aloft by a careless hand. Whoever was it that told me I shouldn't gorge on the scraps thrown out onto the black ripples of the shore? Oh, delicious poison, whoever said your leftovers, delicious as they were, could be a slow murder. So tell me about this poem. There's, a, there's quite an inversion of the, I guess, the original um, recipe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. bread, really, or recovered bread, but this is quite different. Yes, it's sort of, it's a bit more about the, the the bread the bread is so many things in the book I suppose um, but in this one it's sort of the bread is is hope that has become a poison um, you know we sort of always think of I guess hope as something good but sometimes hope can just keep you uh, in the wrong place um, instead of moving on if you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of bread in the book, isn't there? Um, yeah. A lot of metaphorical themes. Yeah. I, I sort of, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and a lot of, I remember loving all the bread symbolism, even as a really little kid, it sort of fascinated me because they talked about bread so much, you know, in communion and things like that. The manna, you know, in the desert when they were starving and, and the manna came down and it just always fascinated me. Um, I guess kids are fascinated by food anyway in stories. Um, and it was just one of those things that sort of, I guess, became a real symbolic thing for me of sustenance. Um, and that's why I've called it Bread of the Lost as well, because it's the idea of the sustenance that comes from um, the, the actual poetry. Mm. And in speaking of the the Catholic bread, um, there is a transformation. There's transformation in this poem, and and food, of course, transforms as well in our yeah. bodies. So yeah. that that all seems to be another ongoing theme through the book. This idea of of transformation into other things. Oh yeah, I hadn't sort of thought of it that way, but I, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, and, and um, 
Yeah, you sort of wonder, is, is it something that you sort of grew up with or is it is it something symbolic because it is just an archetype or is it something that came on to you from your upbringing? It's hard to know where they begin and end, isn't it? Yes, well, I suppose there's a transformation there too. Um, yeah. You, know, you get your upbringing given to you in one form, but of course as we grow, that becomes art in different ways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like that, who am I thinking of, was talking, oh, that's right, the poet um, Vincenti, uh, Vincenti Hugh he was a surrealist poet, and he said poetry had to sort of go into the furnace of you and came out sort of as like an alchemical thing. Um, you, you sort of burnt your experience on the way through and, and the result was the poetry that, or the art. It comes out the other side of it, yeah. Yes, uh, that's probably a good description of, of all art forms, really, yeah. when it's working well anyway. Um, yeah. You know, we, we like to think we burn we burn off the particular and turn it into the universal, I suppose. Yeah, and I suppose that's a sort of alchemical thing, isn't it, too? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, in this poem in particular, I'm thinking of the swan yeah. and the transformation. Yeah. It wasn't until after I'd actually named the book The Bread of the Lost of the lost that I came up with the cover image of the saint um, the um, Elijah um, who who was a not a saint but he was a, a hermit and he went off by himself to meditate and pray in a cave and the only thing that sustained him was a raven that brought a lump of bread every day and mm. um, that I really liked that image and that sort of was something I incorporated into the book with the cover where, where did you get that cover image? Um, Google. <laughs> so um, it was something that was sort of um, public, you know, uh, public domain. So mm. um, we used that and we also looked for, if you notice in the background, there's a, a sort of antique map that we use for the background um, that's the actual cover behind the picture, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there was a feeling maybe that the the cover didn't give away what the book was about, but I sort of liked that idea as well because you can open it up and sort of discover what's in there. Yes, I don't think covers ever do anymore. No, I don't think so either. I think as long as it looks like something you might like to pick up, that's the main thing, yeah. Mm. yeah. So how did the book come out? Come about? Did you write the poems individually or um, were you were you focusing on a collection as a whole as you wrote them? Well, I wasn't focusing on a collection really, but they came out of sort of maybe a year or a year and a half of experiences that in the end had that theme because it was that they were poems that I wrote responding to those experiences um, and so um, it was good also because they came out all so quickly I wrote them so quickly really that only a few had actually been published so they're all really fresh poems um, and they all were quite chronological um, so they just melded together um, it, in a way they were sort of I was tired of writing sort of um, really um, nihilistic poetry that I'd written at a stage when I was very depressed in a different stage of my life and I came to the point where I realised I'd been writing much more lusty 
poetry and, you know, sort of I'd come into a different phase of my life and I sort of, what I wanted to do was put together those really life-affirming, some are difficult poems, but in the long run they're all very life-affirming and they're very, I just feel that Eros is very strong in the poetry, even in the ones that are quite almost violent. Um, it's, it's very driven by Eros and, and they were the ones that I felt really belonged together. Mm. Um, they were one or two poems that I still liked but took them out because they really didn't, they went from that part of my life so I took them out because it was just a bit jarring that they didn't belong with the other poems. Mm. Yes, there's a lot of energy through the, the yeah, poems, a very high, high energy work. Yeah, that's, what, that's sort of what I mean, whereas I had gone through a phase of writing quite, um, yeah, sort of, like, nihilistic is the only word I can really think of, um, mm. and that was oh. yeah, a different phase of my life that I had or that I had come out of, yeah. The, the natural war too is, oh. is very pervasive in these poems, you know, mm. almost... Almost as a character throughout all of them, we've got the natural world weaving in and out of the human world. Oh yeah, I hadn't. Yeah, I, I, um, Lee Winfield, the poet with Lee Winfield, said something like that. Now I can't remember that it was something like along those lines. I can't remember because they were beautiful words that she used. Um, yeah, um, to me that's just that is just how I think. You know, I, I, that's not conscious. That just is how I live and how I think, I just, I guess, um, you know, the way I have lived as an adult has been very much part of the natural world, you know, living in a little valley in southern Tasmania and sort of really, you know, sort of being surrounded by the bush and stuff like that. It just isn't a conscious decision to do that. Just happened. You just look out the window, and uh, I guess does it come from the window into the into the book? Yeah, um, and I mean, nature tends to come into my house as well. <laughs> as I look down at the floor and see twigs and leaves, <laughs> bird droppings on the page. What's that? I think bird droppings on the yeah. page. <laughs> that's right, yeah, that's right. I mean, I haven't been unknown to go to the shop with twins in my hair, so, yeah. <laughs> Just setting up that mad poet persona. Yeah, I don't have to try very hard to go <laughs> Can you read us Botley Lesson, which I have written down as page 22? Page 22. Page 22. Yeah, sure. Sure. Oh, botany oh, lesson, yeah. Botany lesson. I will knock on the door of room 22. You have told me you will be there with lilies, blue lilies. I know the thought, as a panther. You know why, and I know why. We will walk along the esplanade beside the sand to the end, where there is a sward of green, green, how I love you, green. Vede, vede, ketekiero, vede. And I will whisper to the grass, you know why, I will whisper, and I know why. We will imagine we are with Odysseus and his crew. We will cross the footbridge and we will find ourselves stranded on an island of Lothasaji, Lothasitas. You will never want to leave, you know why. We will spend our time studying the sundew and its sticky heart. We will follow the path used by the bees, and I know why. <laughs> yes. 
Tell me about this one. Um, I actually wrote that for someone. Uh, we sort of had a very sort of sensual relationship because of uh, the poet Lorca. <laughs> and that's why it's um, it's got a little quote from Lorca's poem, Green, Green, How I Love You, Green. We, we um, sort of, that was our little token um, thing that we used to say to each other. And it was just a little, um, it was a little fantasy. Um, there was, a, to tell the truth, we were never going to meet actually physically, but it was a little love affair that we had um, in um, cyberspace, and it was something that I wrote to. It was a sort of awakening for me. Um, uh, it's hard to say, but um, sort of at a, at a time of my life when I guess my life was a little bit barren and suddenly being reawakened to, you know, the sensuous world. Um, and and for me, that was really a, a gift from um, from someone that I didn't know that, you know, sort of reawakened my sort of feelings of, of um, I guess, sexuality and, and, and longing and that sort of thing. So, that yeah, that was something that I actually wrote for him that, that I really loved. Yeah. Mm. And with all this sort of classical imagery, um, it's interesting, and I'll get back to the classical imagery too, because I'd love to talk more about uh, Odysseus and, and his Lotus Eater land. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's almost a calypso poem. But I, I also have noticed that there is a lot of modern technology um, working in and out with this classical theme. Yeah. Dualism. Yeah. Web of obsession and um, you know silencing the telephones, um, yeah. mobile phones are in here. Yeah. And it is a poem. I was looking for it because it relates almost directly to what you said about um, showing up someplace um, in different locations and probably in the world. Uh, it's the pub. I'll find it. Okay. Where you turn up and um, and the person's not there. And but not there, but that's just not the same person, to tell the truth. Um, yeah. um, <laughs> he, even though he was in another country, he'd say, um, "Meet me there," and I'd and he'd say that he was sort of standing there, and he was going to meet me one day at the pub in Sydney. And I actually went there almost because it almost seemed probable that he couldn't turn up there, even though in reality that wasn't possible. Um, yeah, it was it was a funny thing because he was so convincing. He'd say, um, which room of the house was I in? <laughs> and he'd tell me he was standing across the road and things like that. So, yeah, that was the poem that came out of that experience. Yeah, it's nice because it's charged through with that. Yeah, and, uh, Google Earth. Like I have put some of those poems on it a page online and um the ones that the ones that relate to um technology have been uh read so much and I think I think that really is something that uh, appeals to people because you know those people's ideas of love poems are often if they don't read a lot of poetry um it's sort of words worth and Tennyson and stuff like that and I think it it, it's attractive to people because they sort of realise that it's part of their 
the current culture. It's not something that has to belong in the 18th century. Yes, well, we've, we've always got the, the pastoral working hand in hand with that postmodern technological. Yeah. Um, the poem, I found the poem, and it's Google Earth, which yeah. is page eight. So I'd love it if you read it because it also mentions the Lotus Eaters, which of course is used in a yeah. different context. Yeah, yeah that's right. But it's quite a nice parallel. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that too. Um, Google Earth. You said you would wait for me behind the shed, the shed behind the Lotus Eaters. You would take my hands and lead me behind the tree. You said we could walk to the friendly grocer and buy ourselves a drink. I said everyone who knows me will wonder who you are, but I will just smile. You said, thanks. An hour or two of driving and singing Ombra Maisu again and again, stumbling over the words, and I was there. It was raining. I walked in the rain, spits of rain like specks flown from harsh words. And I looked for the shed behind the lotus cedars, half expecting you to be there, waiting for me. It was a low shed, built of asbestos sheeting and timber, and not the silver-grey hay barn I'd imagined. There were cows in the paddock, black and white. The grass was long. I did not walk behind the tree, a blackwood tree. Nobody took my hands. I didn't even buy myself a drink at the friendly grocer's. I didn't come across anyone that I knew. I took a picture of the shed with my phone and sent it to you half a world away. The next day, you told me that you had waited a long time for me, but that I didn't turn up. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> because that's actually what happened, and it was so sort of mind-bending. <laughs> mm. Yes, it's, again, because, I guess because almost, um, almost as a lucky coincidence, You've got the name of the shed, you know. You've got yeah. the lotus eater, which yeah. is obviously a place. Yeah. It's a place. Yeah. But you can't help but think about the mythology. Yeah, that's right, and and I love that because well, the lotus eater is a thing. Is it's something I've written about before. It's just an image that sort of has stuck with me, you know, um, eating the lotuses and not, you know, um, it's it's a very sort of sensual. Um, image to me and, and it does come up and again and again um, yeah. Um, yeah I don't really know why but it's just something that sort of resonates for me mm. yeah. and with many of the poems too in addition to all of that other stuff that we've talked about that's going on I felt that there was this conjunction between the veneer of civilization and the wild animal beneath. You yes. know, it's part of what charges the poems with so much energy, I think, is this notion of the wild animal we all really are. Yes. And that's some of the violence you talked about, too. Um, I'm thinking yes. particularly of the tooth claw and nail, which is there too, and maybe you could read us that. Yes. Um, my kids have always told me I'm not a person, I'm a creature, and that comes out in the poem, I suppose. Um, 32, um, in a nice way, of course. I mean, they're not the same way. They just think I'm... In the nice way the children have of saying things. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and yeah, I, I sort of, I guess I sort of know what they mean because um, I guess that's true of everyone. Anyway, I'll read this. Tooth, claw and nail. Most people are people, but a few are animals, my daughters tell me. They point out to me the ones who are people. 
They tell me I'm not a person, but a creature. They say my hair is not people hair, but creature gags and snags. That my face is not the face of a person, but the softish velvet muzzle of a beast. I think my daughters are right. I think that might be how we recognised each other, you and I, disguised in our grey people clothes, but secretly happy with our smooth creature skins, taught to speak words, but only really listening to those grunts and moans, the guttural groans, whistles and sighs imperceptible to the human ear. And though instilled with the need for rules and laws like everybody else, we were only ever contained by the firm touch of hand on crank, of sigh on sigh, you and I are creatures that snuffle and prod at each other's ryegrass-scented necks. We sniff out each other's secrets, track each other's spore with a cunning eye. We even sit in coffee shops, sipping from proper coffee cups. The other patrons unaware of the invisible brushing of skin, brushing of fur erect from a million vein follicles. Mm. Mm, that brings back <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, in, in this poem and and in most of the others too, there, there's quite a almost a riot, and this may go back to I guess this this animal notion too, but quite a riot of of the senses, the yeah. sounds, smells, textures. Um, you know, I, I got this, this the feeling really quite literally that um, you know you're engaging everything for the reader. Yeah. It becomes almost a full body experience. You know, we can smell these poems, we can taste them, we can yeah. feel them. Well, I hope so, because that, that was something I, I would love to be doing um, in my poems. Um, um, and and I, I guess part of it, too, is the way I write poetry is very immediate. Like, I probably rushed home after that experience and wrote it down straight away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I, I sort of don't leave time to cogitate about things. And if I do, if I write things down and then think about them too much, they tend to kill the poem. Um, so I guess it's also partly the, the, a bit of the immediacy of the poetry and um, and a deliberate a deliberate um, decision not to uh, sort of over over um think intellectualize it yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah is it is it a, is that one of the um i guess one of the difficulties of being a writer is that it's it's quite hard to be in any particular moment fully without immediately thinking of how this might translate into a <laughs> i know it's terrible like sometimes I, I, in the past people have told me you know oh i knew of someone who did this that and the other and this happened to them and that the appropriate response would be, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, really? <laughs> and then you have to cover it up and say, oh, oh that's terribly sad. I can use this pain. Oh, yeah, so I guess it's a little bit, I don't know, it's, 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 it's a funny thing that, yeah, I guess with, it's just part of being a storyteller. Mm. Yes, that's right. Uh, now, look, um, I, I find it impossible to resist a poem with a TARDIS in it, um, especially a TARDIS of passion. Tell, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the dark man in women's dreams. Oh, yeah, what page is that one? 56. <laughs> this poem 
you know, some poems you've got to dig more away than others. And <laughs> um, I guess it's a bit revealing, this poem, but then, you know, I figure that's what it's all about. So let it all go. The Dark Man in Women's Dreams. Cocooned in the black wrappings of my room, I searched like a crazy woman fumbling for shillings inside a battered velvet purse. Muffled by the black swaddling of night, my voice is merely a breath. My breath a faraway whimper, like the fling of startled ghost birds in the silence of middle of the dark. Pressed in by the secrecy of our longings, we whisper to each other, snatching for handfuls of the eternal in the fleeting, finite minutes of our greed. Breathless, urging on in this tardis of passion, in the black box spinning through time, through space. Oh yeah, we patted each other. Oh yeah. I can almost feel your scumming breath. Resolved by nights in wrapping pelt, our sibilant demands look at each other in the sweetness of these sticky molasses minutes. It is night. You slip in through the cracks where the wintry wind cuts in. You insinuate yourself into my room. Are you... <coughs> sorry. Are you the dark man in women's dreams? Oh, yeah, I sigh. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, if you've read, you know, you know everyone read Women Who Run With the Wolves. Um, and the dark man in women's dreams is um, it's sort of the uh, predatory male um, and tends to be something that women dream um, and it's a sort of a symbol of their own predator. It's not really a, an external male, really. It's um, the predator inside women's psyche. And so that's sort of a little bit about that, um, as well as being actually about real a real relationship as well. Mm. There, there is, too, this notion. I, I just can't resist it. It's probably just my bent. But um, this that's idea of a tire. This idea of things being bigger on the inside. In effect, yes, and, and, um, that's part of what a poem does. Yeah, that's true. And also it's what a relationship is in a way too, isn't it? Mm. It's sort of like yeah. when you're in it, whereas from the outside it, it it's sort of smaller, but when you're in it, it's your whole universe. Yes. Yeah. And, and even this idea of um, of snatching for handfuls of the eternal and the fleeting. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, the idea of the TARDIS, I sort of, I hadn't sort of thought of the complexity of what it could mean. Thanks. <laughs> You've got to watch more Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> My kids watch it. <laughs> I'm tempted to get you to read every poem in this book, but um, we're running a little bit um, yeah. close to the, end of the show. So um, you do you don't just write poetry. Um, that would be enough, of course. But you also are a novelist, yeah. and you've got another novel pretty close to um, completed. Yeah. Tell me about it. It is close now. <laughs> I, I wrote the synopsis yesterday. Um, so I should know what it's about. It's very complex. It's called The Bishop, the Gypsy and the Dancing Bear. And it's sort of, it's futuristic, I guess, post-apocalyptic in a way, but it's, it is Australia, um, and I've called Australia Incognita, which I've done before in, in another novel. And mm. it's, about, it's about fear of outsiders. Um, so basically, really, it's about Australia... Over the past decade or more, 
and its response, its relationship with refugees and asylum seekers. That's the underpinning yeah. theory. Um, um, but what happens in what happens this time is that uh, it's it's in the future when the, that society is quite at a state of decay. Um, the whole of Australia is, uh, the whole of eastern seaboard is fenced off with a wall that runs the whole length of Australia. And um, the whole population of the country has a phobia of birds. So there's a netting that stretches across the whole um, area where everybody lives. Everyone who lives there is sort of undernourished. Um, the children are born, um, are underdeveloped. They all have problems with sight. And unbeknownst to them, the president actually has secret poultry farms outside of the Great Wall where... Um, the military and, and the president are provided with protein um, that the population don't get. Um, and so there's that irony of that being birds anyway that are providing all this protein for the militia to live off. Outside the wall are the descendants of the boat people. And even though they're sort of living under very harsh conditions, the difference is they still have their culture and they still have their humanity. Um, and what happens in the story, it's really complex, but what actually happens is that the story, it tells the story of how the people who've fenced everyone else off are the ones who've actually built their own prison or cage and then eventually they have to send for help to the outsiders to come and rescue them which they do at the end of the book so you can be happy about everything, you know. Sort of <laughs> happens at the end and there's a good ending. Um, but, yeah, it's it's incredibly complex story. Um, it was really hard to write a synopsis for it because there's just so many different plots. Um, mm. the, the, the story is carried by a few people inside the city. There's a little girl who's been left and taken to the orphanage there's a woman who's put in the mental wing at the hospital um, and there are a few other characters who sort of carry the story through because they actually escape the, from inside the wall. They end up outside the wall and they sort of carry the story back in and the people are delivered from the president and his military. Mm. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. So um, that, that's very exciting. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, where can our listeners go to find out more about your work? Um, well, uh, my last novel was a penguin novel, so if they're interested in that, that was The World as a Clock Face, um, published by Penguin in 2001. And the, the, the most recent collection of poetry... Um, Bed of the Lost was published by uh, Wallia Press, W-A-L-L-E-A-H, um, in um, Tasmania. And there's your blog too, Lady of the... Yes, I have a blog. Um, <laughs> oh, the, the, yeah, that's that Lady of the Swamp is the name of my blog. And... Um, and I have a few different things. Like if you just put my name into Google, you'll come up with a few different sites where you can read my poetry and things like that. Yes, you're probably the only one. Uh, I'm definitely the only one. 